Welcome to another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. For this episode, you'll hear a conversation with Kenny G. I've known Kenny for quite a while. I actually met him backstage at a Jeff Lorber Fusion concert. Back in the late 70s, he was the saxophonist in the band and shortly thereafter became a solo artist and changed his tune, if you would, uh, to more of a mellow sound, more of a lighter sound, a smoother sound, if you would. And I talked to him about that. I challenged him a little bit. And Kenny took me to task on that, letting me know that he knew that I hadn't been to see a live performance of Kenny, his show, for quite a while. And that's true. And he had a lot to say about music, the critics. And you should also know that you can read a lot about Kenny G and other smooth jazz artists, as well as more eclectic, more traditional, some world music, all kinds of jazz by becoming a subscriber to Jazz is just log on to jazziz.com and be sure to like us, subscribe, and to share our podcast with friends or write a review so that we can keep these podcasts coming your way. You should also know that we've had a lot of fun with Kenny over the years. I remember one cover story where we had Kenny uh, portrayed on the cover with a uh, uh, arrows being shot into him with suction cups, and the the theme was uh, the critics would send their critical barbs his way. Uh, These suction cups obviously didn't hurt. He became one of the most successful instrumental artists of all time. And he's been a good sport about it. Uh, In that issue, cover story, we actually uh, had Michael Roberts, one of our regular contributor writers, uh, listen to every Kenny G album in a room and write about his experience. And Kenny, again, has always been a good sport. We've enjoyed working with Kenny over the years. So for now, Enjoy a conversation with Kenny G. cloudy and looks like Seattle except it's warm. <laughs> That's right. It's been like that for a week. But you know, I was talking to Jamie Cohen yesterday and he was in London and I was telling him how bad the weather was and he just didn't want to hear it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just don't go off in this weather. Yeah, exactly. Well, if it's okay, I wanted to take you back um, to almost the beginning, certainly the beginning from when I was introduced to you. I, you know, it was actually in Florida. Um, I was a student at the University of Florida, and you uh, came uh, with your, at the time, uh, the Jeff Lorber Fusion. And, you know, one of the things I remember, I was a freelance writer back then, and, you know, I think it was around maybe 1978. But like it was yesterday, I remember the reaction to the crowd, which is which is something that I often do. I'll go to a show, and I'll be somewhat familiar with the music, but I, I'd like to watch the audience reaction. And I saw them get excited with your playing. And that's one of the things I wanted to address. But the other thing is, you seemed to play harder back then. Is there, is that, do you think so? You mean like, like more, you mean more volume on the saxophone? Or what do you mean by harder? Uh, maybe, maybe more aggressive. On which horn? Uh, I think back then, where you wowed the crowd was, was with Soprano. Hmm. How, how long has it been since you've seen me play? Uh, I actually, 
I probably saw you play maybe 10, 12 years ago. It's been a long time. Yeah, well, um, I, then I, but there's no real answer to your question. I mean, <clears throat> I'm not sure that's true. I mean, if you're listening to recordings, you're going to yeah. hear, um, you probably hear more ballads that don't have a lot of, you know, technical riffs and stuff in them. Right. Uh, so you may be thinking like that, but, you know, I don't think so. I mean, you know, if you would have seen us last night, I would have thought you would have just said the opposite, but... Oh, okay, uh, well, then, 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 then uh, my fault, because uh, you're right. I have been listening to you mostly through your recordings, and, yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that, that uh, you may or may not know is uh, we're fans. You know, you're... In fact, it's, some, it's somewhat weird that um, as the, the most successful instrumentalists in the world, we've not only been fans of yours, we, we've lived a little bit in a parallel universe, and you know, though admittedly my tastes are a little bit more eclectic, and as the publisher of jazz is for over 30 years, I've always enjoyed and appreciated your truly unprecedented success. And, you know, the uh, unlike the, the wariness of the jazz police, I've always looked at your attainment with optimism that there is indeed a, a large audience out there that loves instrumental music. Um, and and so, you know, it's, it's something that I've always found fascinating. And you know, back to those early years, you know, I, I had heard, I read years ago that, that Clive Davis had a, an influential uh, role in your, in your, the launch of your solo career. Can you, can you talk about that? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I was with Jeff Lorber for about five years and we, you know, we just kind of toured around the country. I was, we were in a small van. We were, you know, there's no no road crew or anything. We're just driving and playing wherever Jeff had his gigs, and it was really fun. But it was, um, we'd come to New York, I guess, once a year. We'd play somewhere uh, with a club called The Bottom Line. I remember playing there many times, and Clive Davis would, would come and watch his artist, which was Jeff, and then obviously kind of got to know me a little bit over those years. And, and eventually he came and approached Jeff's manager and said something like, you think Kenny would want to do his own record? So then Jeff, Jeff and his manager approached me and said, Hey, you know, that'd be cool with us. And so then we kind of all did it together. And that was the, that was the first record. And, and after the first record, I realized that when I was recording, I just didn't want to do the same things that Jeff was doing. Mm-hmm. So I needed to be out on my own because like when you were talking about playing harder, you know, the difference is that when I record something, it's a totally different set of, uh, uh, I guess, feelers would be mm-hmm. the way that I would describe it. Like when I when I hear recordings, for example, if I'm going to listen to Stan Getz, who I really love, mm-hmm. uh, and I love Cannonball Adderley, I love I love John Coltrane, I love mm-hmm. all. I mean, I that's all I listen to is the is the traditional jazz masters. Of course, there's some great great young players now as well. But when I'm listening to a recording, I don't necessarily want to hear. Um, all that technical stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to hear something that I can listen to over and over, and it gives me enough of everything. I want, of course, I want to be wowed by the by the uh, technical part, but I also want to be in, to enjoy it. So, when I make my music, it's like I could fill it up with a lot of really fast riffs. I mean, I I, I know I know what my technique can do, mm-hmm. and yet. If I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't make me happy to listen to that over and over. So I saved that for my live show. So when I was recording with Jeff Lorber, I knew I, that I wanted to play differently about and how to record. So 
I that's when I went out and kind of left his his um the womb, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a really friendly parting at that point because, you know, Jeff wasn't very happy that I didn't really want to work with him anymore. Now, but it wasn't anything personal. It was just, you know, I need to, to, I need to write a song the way I hear it. I need to play it the way that I hear it. And I don't want you to, you know, I don't want any more influences like that. So that's kind of how it worked with that. And I guess like four records, three records later, that's when I started doing my songs like Songbird and the other things that the other ballads that became pretty, pretty popular. And, Clyde was really, really supportive and and opened up a lot of doors there for me. Well, that's great. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting, and, and I guess my uh, my mistake was I haven't seen you live in a few years, which I should do because I, I know you have a couple dates here in Florida. The, um, in fact, um, in, in support of what you said, I, I have talked to you know critics and other you know if you were jazz police, and one of the things I've always said. Now, have you ever seen Kenny live? Because I, I have seen you, like I said, back back in the days in the late seventies. And uh, I said he plays his ass off, and they would kind of look at me shocked, like I would say that. And, yeah. And so, so <laughs> I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that you're still doing that live because I it, it was it was something that was quite memorable, you know, back thirty plus years ago. Um, well, well, thank you. I, I I appreciate that, and that and that's the thing is that. That what happens with the what we I would guess if you want to call them jazz police, but I would just call them they're they're probably traditional jazz lovers that love the the format so much that when they hear something else, uh, and by the way, it's it's gotten so diluted. I mean, I know that when I was doing my sound, let's say it became popular in the mid '80s, then all of a sudden there's you know there's there's 50 other sax players that sing that are trying to get that sound and. And the thing that, and I'm not, I'm, I'm hopefully don't sound egotistical, but I grew up and I was, I mean, I've practiced and practiced and I've listened to like a Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and, and Grover Washington Jr. and Stanley Turrentine. And it's not like, it's not like I necessarily play like them, but I've studied and practiced. And the, these other players, they're hearing me and they're trying to emulate me and they, they, they don't have the foundation. Right, right. And, and so, it sounds so diluted to me and, and not not that impressive. So I think a lot of the, maybe some of the critic, critical uh, things that you would read about me and my music is that it's just gotten so much out there like like that. It's just they just don't even care to, to even, you know, they don't, like, they don't like the format. So I would always say, hey, you know, you may not like the format, but just come watch me, watch us play. And within mm-hmm. that format, See what we can do. It's not like I sit there and play whole notes all night long. And we 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 lay it down. And um, but that they don't do that. So they'll they'll just you know they'll just critique the fact that a song like let's just say a ballad that I play like Songbird. Well, they don't like it. But I can tell you this: um, I played Songbird many a time as I was opening up for Miles Davis. <laughs> so now I'm Miles Davis's opening act, right? He's happy with me being his opening act. Yes, if he wasn't, I wouldn't be there. So I'm I'm playing. He's watching me play. I'm playing my stuff, and he comes and tells me that he likes what I'm doing. So <laughs> now, if Miles Davis says he likes what I'm doing, and the jazz critic says he doesn't like what I'm doing. Who do you think I'm going to pay more attention to? I go with Miles. I go with Miles. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and in those days, Miles had his back to the audience, and he played about half as many notes as I played. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you're thinking like, wow, Miles. But the thing is, Miles had all that foundation where he came from. So you look at Miles and you go, okay, you can do whatever you want. We know where you came from. 
when they when they listen to me, they don't have any idea like you do. You saw me play with Jeff Lorber. You know things that we did. But if I'm playing a ballad, I'm playing a ballad because I want to put a certain sound out there, a melody. Uh, I'm trying to move myself. Uh, and just I just play it a certain way. And obviously, with the success of the of the songs that I've done, the melodies that I'm playing are some somehow they're touching people in a way that. You you can't deny. So then then the question is, okay, what what do you what is a what is better? Okay, there right. obviously there's no real answer. But is it better if somebody plays four notes and and moves a person's heart, or is it better if somebody plays four million notes and they impress the the, the technical people out there? There's no answer. There's no right yeah. answer. I'm saying both are both are very legitimate and. I'd like to think that I can do both, but you, you won't hear it unless it's necessarily on a recording uh, of a ballad, but you if you come live, you'll see plenty of, of both, both sides of that. Gotcha. Well, you know, the, uh, Bob James uh, and I have been friends for a long time, and we've listened to music you know, over and over again, and so many times he said what you said. He'll listen to an artist and go, guy's got a lot of talent, plays too many notes. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things I everyone has to recognize is that your extraordinary popularity became the catalyst for a lot of record labels and radio stations and formats for the softer side of jazz, for what you were doing on your recordings. Much later, coined smooth jazz, but that became sort of the repertoire du jour. And the reason I say we live kind of in parallel universes, as a magazine, what magazines are supposed to do we addressed those trends back in the 80s and 90s and, and, and that crusade, if you would. And, and we covered artists like Russ Freeman and Stanley Clark and we written our Dave Grusin, but we also covered them alongside Sonny Rollins, Miles Davis, Bill Evans, Herbie Hancock. And yet because we covered the more popular and trending, what some people might call lighter jazz, we got coined as a smooth jazz magazine. Of course, that's dissipated, but back in the 80s, which was a hard thing for us to shake. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm listen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I if I if I helped cause you to get that label. <laughs> but, well, but I know but I know how you feel. I mean, I know exactly how you feel. Uh, I never really liked to be labeled a smooth jazz sax player either. But um, people, but people like labels because it's it's just easier for somebody to know what it is that they're getting. It's like you go to a restaurant and you can say, so what kind of what what do you serve there? And somebody says, well, we serve food. Okay, well. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to like it. Well, we serve Italian food. Okay, I like Italian food. So right. smooth jazz was a label that they made, that, that people made up so that they would identify, let's say, whatever whatever I was doing or, or that kind of sound. Okay, so, oh, I like that. But a lot of people, uh, when they would come to my concerts, they would say to me, you know, I never liked jazz until I heard you. And I'm thinking, okay. And so whenever, whenever they say that, they go, well, listen. If you like what I'm doing, I want you to listen to the, the people that I listen to that inspired me. And then I would say, hey, you know, listen to listen to Sonny Rollins, listen to Stan Getz, listen to, you know, Stanley Turrentine, et cetera. And then I, I, I used to think that I was helping the people that had no idea, where, you know, where to even look for, like, a, a traditional jazz sound to open their minds up to it. So I, I felt like I was doing a service to to traditional jazz by... By the fact that I was lucky enough to, to get that popularity. Yeah, and, 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 and you may recall back in, I think it was maybe in the, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, the first time we did a, a Kenny G cover story, you were already on your way to stardom. 
the jazz police were taking their sniper positions. And to address all the lunacy, we actually, um, in contrast to the other media at the time, uh, we did a photo shoot of you. And it's a long time ago, so you probably don't remember. Uh, but we used one of our wonderful photographers. And, you know, we, we wound up doing this very close-up shot of you with a 5 o'clock shadow. And, and on the inside, we, you, you were wearing, actually, glasses. And a, you, I think you were playing the tenor. Um, and the story really was about, it begged the question, what's everyone so up in arms about? And, and it, it caused a little bit of controversy, which, of course, we like to do. But what I remember from those days is somebody called me from Arista upset, saying they didn't like the cover photo because it wasn't the image that they were trying to portray. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I wouldn't have any idea about that phone call. And, you know, was, I was happy just to be there with, with, your, with your magazine. I was flattered. So I, was, well. I thought, I do remember that very well. And I remember that, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was I, I liked the, the angle because it was addressing, uh, you know, a good point. Yeah, and, 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 and to uh, kind of finish that thought, if you remember, the second time we put you on the cover of Jazz is, it was actually in response to Matheny's diatribe about what a wonderful world. And instead of doing a photo shoot this time, you ran an illustration uh, with the headline, Oh My God, They Killed Kenny. Uh, and, it, of course, it, it pointed out that in the face of all these critical bars, your popularity with the listening audience continues to grow. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that very well. And uh, I actually, I thought it was a joke when, when Matheny was doing that. I thought it was a joke, but it wasn't. But, you know, listen, he, he, has, a, he has a right to, to feel any way he wants to feel. I just, I just I actually wrote him an email, but I never got a response to it. I said, listen, when you're, when you're in the public eye, you just be careful, you know, what yeah. you say, because, you know, you can have your opinions, but when you put it out there so hard and, and, and really mean, I said, it, 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 doesn't really, it doesn't really affect me that much, but it, it makes you look bad. I said, you're, right. you're kind, of, kind of abusing your, your privilege of having, being able to get up on the soapbox and talk about music. But he was definitely just, whatever, he was very, uh, uh, what was the word? Um, he was, I guess, um, what's the right word? Disgusted or something with, yeah. with what happened. And, and he felt like he had to say something. I mean, who knows? You know what, man? He could have been, he could have had too many drinks, you know? Um, I always said he could have been taken out of context. I mean, you know, I, I can't imagine why anyone could get that. Look, there's, there's a lot of things in this world to be angry about. That is certainly not one. No. No, I mean, I mean, I got, I've got the, you know, the good housekeeping stamp of approval from Louis, the Louis Armstrong Foundation. You know, I'm, I'm able to use video of him. We, when we do our live shows, I play that to his video. I mean, I have permission to do that, and I mean, you know, they're not going to give me permission if they think it's a piece of shit. You know, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the thing that I also found a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit contradictory is, you know, the song was written by Bob Beale and George Weiss. Um, it's a song that Satchmo definitely made famous. But we live in a world where rappers cut and paste jazz classics all the time without any backlash. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that song had a personal meaning to him or something. Or something, something set him off. And yeah. again, it could have, he could have just really had a really crappy day. Maybe he had yeah. a house to throw, you know? I mean, if, if I don't feel like I played very well and I, and I have to talk to somebody after my show, I'm probably not going to be in the best mood either. So <laughs> there's, lots, there's lots of reasons. I didn't, it didn't really affect me that much. No. Uh, I was a little shocked because it was so 
blatantly hateful, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not. I'm not really used. To, I'm used to. I'm used to critics talking like that, but not other musicians. So right, right, of course. And, yeah. Anyway, it, it was. Uh, it, it came and went, but yeah, I remember. I remember your magazine too, and I. I see. I love all that kind of stuff. I, I like these kind of dialogues. It's great to have them because you know people are passionate about what they're passionate about, and sure. and uh, you know so I love I love giant steps like everybody. And right now I'm actually it's funny I'm I've got a I've got a little project that I'm making on my own. I'm gonna I want to play the giant step solo on soprano and and just kind of do it to John Coltrane's uh, recording and then just film it on my iPhone and just put it out there. And I'm 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 about halfway there and I can play that's it. great. You know, and uh, it's it's a little high on the soprano in certain areas, but it's it works, and I'm and, and it's cool. I'm I'm just having fun with it. So it's not like uh, you know, there's not any real traditional jazz out there for me to do. Right. Well, you know that you say you're having fun with it. One of the things that I've always appreciated about you is your sense of humor. You're, you're really, I mean, by every definition, a good sport. You roll with the punches. You always seem to turn those punches into an embrace. You know, whether you're on a talk show or cameo in a movie or a TV commercial. Um, I've always been impressed by that. And uh, one of the things that the most recent one that I, I recall was an episode of John Oliver's This Week Tonight, uh, yeah. where I love that he pointed out how your music in China, is, it's almost like an anthem where going home, your song going home, is kind of a musical cue that it's time for people to go home in schools and public places. Um, and he went on, as, as the audience should know, to propose that um, this is clearly our secret weapon. Uh, Kennedy has the singular <laughs> ability to make the people in China go home and relax. But but it was what was great about it, what I loved was that, you know, when he played it for people in China, they, they obviously know your song. And then there was, I'm sure you know, that the one guy that they said, uh, you noticed they showed a picture of you, and he said, um, is he still alive? And of course, John Oliver said, uh, what do you mean is he still alive? The G is an immortal being untethered from space and time, floating endlessly on an eternal wave of smoothness, almost impractically smooth, and I'm quoting him, like wearing a mink coat in a bathtub full of lube. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. Isn't that brilliant? That is, the, that is so funny. And, you know, at rehearsal, when he's doing this, I mean, I, I literally, when he was yelling at me while I was playing, I couldn't keep my straight face. I was laughing the whole time because I thought, please don't lose it during the real taping of the show. I saw you almost, so almost lost it at one point. Almost, almost. Because he's asking me questions, you know. You see, he was only supposed to ask me two, and he asked me three. Like, he's supposed to ask me like something like, uh, you can't do that. I'm supposed to shake my head no. And then he yells at me, can you? I go, oh, wait, I was ready for that one. <laughs> Well, that was, but, that yeah, was great. But you know that I've been going to China. I don't know if you've ever been to China. Have you? No, no, not. Okay, so I've been there thirty plus, thirty plus times, and I've known this for for you know decades how popular that that song is. So it's not none of this was a surprise to me. And and you know you think about that kind of thing and a, a piece of music that's I mean it's it's part of their it's fabric of their of their whole culture now. I mean kids know it. Uh, you know, grandmothers know it, parents know it, everybody knows this song, so at my concerts, I mean, I look out in the audience and there's, you know, there's eight-year-olds and, and there's lots of teenagers and there's 20-year-olds and then there's 95-year-olds and everybody wants to, they're, they're, they know my sound. 
But the, the mistake I made at first was when, when I first went over there, knowing that this was my popular song, I thought, well, I, I don't want to wait too long and play it. So I played and looked up, the audience left. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. In the music business, um, one of the things that I've noticed is that, uh, and when I had a record company at, at Universal, I, um, people used to say, well, you know, what, is, what makes a hit record? And, or, or sometimes I would ask the question, and they'd spew all kinds of technical things, and I'd say, no, it's actually much more simple than that. If you make an album that appeals to your kids and your mother, it will probably be successful. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good way of saying it. I, nobody ever said that to me before. I, um, but yeah, that's a really smart way of putting it. And that song seems to appeal. I, by the way, when he said, is he still alive? I was, I was so funny. In fact, <laughs> it's so true. They don't, they don't know, you know, some of them don't know my face or my image, but they know the sound. So, um, and, and just to be able to break through it, like China is tough. You know, they, the government controls what, a lot of people see and hear. So the fact that they've allowed me to keep coming back over and over to China to play my music. I mean, they when when I go there, they they want to know what my set list is before I before I they give me a visa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what songs play? I said, well, they're all instrumental. There's I, I'm not gonna. There's no way I can you know infiltrate any of the things that you're trying to 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 have your people know or or feel. I'm, they're just instrumentals. Well, what are the names of the songs you're playing? So I put them <laughs> there and. And then I don't. I think we've done wonderful world over there, and they're they're okay with that song. Yeah. So, but but I know that that there are a lot of you know pop pop groups that try to go over there, and a lot of them are just not allowed. And and if they are, they need to know what songs they're going to sing. And if they if they break with what they are told, then they may not be able to go back to China again and perform. So uh, that's the way it wow. is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well. I wanted to segue to the your latest record and 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 start with a little story. I was I was in Japan uh, uh, with uh, my partner. And there were, I don't know if you recall Lee Rittenauer and I had a, a label back in the group years back, and um, we were launching the label. And he and I and our partner Mark Wexler were in the uh, the hotel. I think it was the the, the the hotel Tokyo or something, and. Um, oh no, no, the capital Tokyo. Capital Tokyo. That's it. The capital Tokyo. And and for some reason, coincidentally, Bob James was playing the Blue Note in Tokyo with Kirk Whalen. And oh. that was in the days of remember those mini discs that were really cool before you could rip CDs and everything. Oh, yeah. I so I, I run into Kirk and he says, "Hey, I just finished my new record." I said, "I'd love to hear it." He said, "Well, I I have a copy of it on mini disc." And I said. I happen to have a mini disc player in my suitcase. So he gives me the, gives me the copy of his of his CD and uh, of his uh, mini disc, and I am uh, I go out for the evening. I actually go to their show at the window and uh, get back to my hotel. It's pretty late, um, but before I go to bed, I figure I pop in the headphones and listen to Kurt's record. And there's a track on there, a Brazilian track uh, titled Escalito, and I said, you know. I know it's like 2.30 in the morning, but I'm going to call Kirk's room anyway. So I call his room, and he answers, it's, uh, hello. And I said, Kirk, it's, it's, it's Michael. I said, I just listened to your record. Escalito is the track. He woke up and he said, don't you just love Brazilian music? And I said, it's my favorite music. I said, there's something about that that reaches everyone. You cannot listen to a good samba and say you don't like it. 
So with yeah. that, tell me about Brazilian night. It seems like Brazilian music is such a natural fit for you. What took so long? Yeah, good question. Well, you know, um, I've always there was there was a thing uh, a, a track that Cannibal Adderley had done, Corcovado, and I heard mm-hmm. it. God, maybe twenty years ago, just thinking, man, that is ah, you know, or maybe it was twenty five, maybe, maybe it was thirty years. I don't remember, but it was like, ah, oh, man, that's that's so good. Ah, I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta be able to play like that someday, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of forgot about it, and then. Maybe maybe three, four, five years ago, I started listening to a Stan Getz record called Getz for Lovers. Great album. And great album, and it had a lot of bossa nova on it. Um, just loved the way he played. I thought, oh my gosh, that is that's just exactly the way that, that appeals to me. There's there's the nice there's those nice jazz changes. There's nice jazz licks, and yet got m- m- melodies there that keep me listening to it. So so you know. And then since, you know, I started listening to that for a couple of years, and one day I went, hey, I'm going to record an album like this. i got to do it. So I said, well, there's that Cannibal Adderley trap that I like. So that I broke that out of, um, you know, I found it on the Internet and, uh, and, then, re- and then listened to it. And I go, okay, I'm going to record it, and I'm going to record it, and I'm going to just, I'm going to copy every note that Cannibal played. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do his solo, and maybe if I don't like a certain areas of a solo or whatever, I'm going to, you know, I'll do my own thing, but mostly it's going to be exactly his notes, right? So, mm-hmm. so I did that, and I went, "Oh my god, this is great! I'm loving this." And 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 then so it it went on where I I picked like five tracks that I liked that the masters had done, and then I wrote five of my own. And yeah, it took I, I guess it just took um, me just every day listening to, to the Stan Getz record and just realizing. Yeah, I really like this, and I'd like to record a record like this because what happens, Michael, with me is that, and okay, this may sound egotistical, and you can take it any way you want, but it isn't okay. coming from that. It's not coming from that. And the, the analogy I'm going to give you is my Christmas record that I did in 1994, and I did it because I would go to Christmas parties and people would put on Christmas music, and I liked it, and then I hated it. Like mm-hmm. two tracks are great. Oh, what's this for? Oh, no, don't do that. I was right in the mood. Mm-hmm. And it would be whatever. It'd be even Nat King Cole's, or was, or somebody else. They would play, and all of a sudden there'd be like some some polka arrangement of something, or some weird big band thing. And like, oh, you had me, and then you lost me. So I said, I'm going to make a Christmas record where the vibe is consistent, and, it, and but every track is going to be done just the way that song should be. Like whatever arrangement I think that would be stand up over time, I'm going to do. So that record, that Christmas record, obviously did very very well, but. The reason I'm saying it is because the same thing with the Bossa Nova record. Like, I've listened to a lot of records, but for whatever reason, I, they got me three or four songs, and then there's one or two in there that just blow the whole vibe away. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to make a, a, a Bossa Nova record, but I want it to be consistent where all the songs, when, when I got you, I want to keep you the whole time. And so that's why I, I made the record, because I felt like, even as much as I like Gets for Lovers, there's a couple songs in there. Go, you know, I'm going to have to fast forward through this one. I don't want to hear this. Well, and, no, and no, no disrespect to anybody. I mean, obviously these guys are amazing players, but that doesn't mean that I have to like every single single uh, song arrangement. So I I wanted to make it like that. So that's why I did. That's that's the one of the reasons I wanted to make because I thought, well, maybe I can do a record where I could actually listen to it and, and like the whole record. Well, you know, and, and I also. I heard a side of it that I had, I don't think I've heard on any of your other albums, and that is strings. 
um, you know, there's something about the the Brazilian music, the softer side, the strings. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you listen to Stan Getz has this classic record with strings. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of great saxophonists have these classic albums with strings. And um, you ever think about doing a, a strings record one day? Well, you mean you mean only strings and no, you know, no band. Mostly strings and like, if you remember Brecker did an album with Klaus Overman. Yeah, where it was basically orchestral, and then he blew over it. Yeah, what was that? What was that record called? It wasn't called Dreams, was it? Uh, it was called I want to say Cityscape. Um, <laughs> I do remember hearing that. I, I but I, I'm a huge Michael Brecker fan. Oh, so yeah, I mean, see, there's the. There's that tenor sax playing, you know, like, like I, I just love the way he plays and he's, he's got those, those cool licks that are not so melodic, but really technical, but yet there's enough, I know it's hard to describe. It's like, it's like when Coltrane would play his things, but, but Brecker didn't quite get quite so outside. Right, right. And, and, you know, I, Michael was just, I always considered him the greatest saxophonist who ever lived. In fact, he did a uh, competition years ago and uh, he was one of the judges. And there was this bassoonist uh, that uh, entered the contest. Yeah, it was a bassoonist or Nova. I think it was a bassoon. And um, and I get a call from Michael one day, and you you, you probably met Michael. He was he was one of the kindest, most humble guys in the world. Yeah. And he, he calls me up and he says, "Hey, who's this uh, Paul Hanson?" And I said, hey, "He's pretty good, isn't he?" He said, "Pretty good. He's almost as good as me." <laughs> um, yeah, I, w- I was thinking, you know, a strange record. Well, first of all, I already have the title for your strange records. Um, yeah, what is, it? what is it? Tell me. G strings. <laughs> <laughs> How funny! You know, when I first started doing live shows, I actually, I actually made G strings and sold them at my show. Wow. <laughs> well, my audience is much younger then, and they were they were kind of into it, but yeah. that was for today. Yeah. Well, the, I also wanted to talk to you about golf just briefly. Um, you're a pretty darn big golfer. You're pretty good. Yeah, you know, it's I'm 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 as good as you can. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm pretty good. I, I I think I think I can be better, but but you know, I'm spending more time you know practicing my saxophone than playing golf. So uh, yeah. Can only be so good. I've got I got a lot of work to do in the next five years on some uh, patterns and stuff. I want to get really, really down. So I got I think I've given myself five years to to really, really work hard on certain things I'm I'm practicing. So my golf game will just be okay. Well, I remember like it was ten, fifteen years ago. You you actually you played with Tiger Woods and Jerry Chang. And um, actually, I just read an article in Time Magazine today. About Tiger Woods and and how his his you know personal life is getting so much better and he's spending a lot of time with the kids, which reminds me, you have two boys. I do. Yes, thanks, Michael. Yeah, I do. And, and how old are they now? Because I remember when you had the first two. Yeah, like, twenty-two and eighteen. Wow, I know. Wow, I know. It goes by so fast and. Um, you know, they've, they, the good thing is they've had a lot of chance to watch me do my thing and come around the road with me and, and, and they see, they see the dedication. It's not like, you know, it's not like I just sit there and lounge around all day. They see me practicing for my three or four hours a day and then they see me play my shows. And, and so it's really, I, I feel like I've had a great opportunity to give them, you know, a nice, you know, real example of, 
of what it takes to be a successful person, and, and not necessarily just musically, it's just that they see how it works. You work really hard, you practice, you're, you're, you're kind to people, and you, you dedicate a lot of time and energy towards what you love to do, and, and then, you know, uh, good things can happen. So I, I feel like I've given them a good example for that, and I, I feel good about that as a dad. Well, that's great. The, um, are they interested in music? Yeah, actually, my oldest son is in New York right now. He, he, um, he's also really smart. So he, he went to Columbia, wow. but he's always, but he's always played guitar. And he's, he, he, you know, he's been practicing three, four hours a day for 10 years now. So he's got a good start on putting, you know, getting the hours in. And he is now just living in Brooklyn. He's got his guitar. He's playing gigs and he's, and he's, um, you know, he's just seeing where life will take him, which I'm, which is exactly what I did when I was 22. That's great. Well, you know, one of the things that I think we talked about before, people misunderstand successful people, and everyone kind of looks at at Kenny G as having a gifted life. Uh, But in reality, we all go through our trials and tribulations. What do you struggle with? Uh, Well, you know, first of all, I do have a gifted life. I think, I mean, you know, you, you can't, you can't have success like that and not think of that, that it's, you can't say it's all you're, you know, all you're doing. I mean, there is, there is like, it's like when you've mentioned Tiger Woods, you know, Tiger Woods had a great run, but, you know, he'll be the first to tell you that he got a lot of good bounces on those, on that ball. He hit the ball well, but mm-hmm. when he hit the ground, and he could have bounced left and it bounced right and he won the tournament. And so, yeah, you know, I, I've worked really hard, but I've also had a lot of good bounces musically. Uh, with doors that open, so I do feel like it's been a gifted life. But struggling is um, my my thing is that I, I I put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the thing that I struggle with, and I'm working. I mean, I'm I'm getting really good at not feeling that way anymore. But but it's, it it helps my work work ethic. It's just that I have to know that it's not the uh, it's not the the, the litmus that tells me whether I'm doing well or not. I mean, nobody's going to be perfect. So, but, but I like the idea that I strive really hard to be as good as I can be. So it does, it does lend itself well to the discipline of putting in the practicing time. So, um, I guess I just struggle with, I just wish I had more time, man. I, I mean, by the time I finish practicing in the morning and I, I exercise every day, you know, most of the day's gone and I just wish I had more time in the day to, to do other things. But yeah. it is what it is. So um, yeah, time, time is precious. Just time, and and I know what it takes to to um, you know, like when you're working on on licks, you know, you're working on patterns, you're working on ideas, phrases. You know, for those things to get themselves into your live performance takes a long time. I mean, you know, I'm working on working on whatever I'm working on. Uh, particular mm-hmm. licks. Uh, I, I try to pro- play everything I tr- do. I try to play in every key, so it's like great exercises. But it, it could take a year before one of those patterns ends up in my live show. And so mm-hmm. I just know that, that I just wish I had more time because I, there's a lot of things I want to get to that point where they're just coming out naturally, and it's going to just take a lot of practice time. So that's just mm-hmm. the way it is. Yeah. Now, you know, you played with, uh, collaborated with a lot of superstars. Um, what is there a concept or a collaboration that you maybe aspire to do in the future? Someone who you might want to work with? Boy, you know that's a, that's a toughie. I mean, 
I'm kind of open to anything that that has that's fun. You know, it could be it could be a it could be a rap artist. <laughs> it could be a pop artist. It could be a jazz artist. I mean, if Paul McCartney called me, I'd be first to go and say, "Yeah, that'd be awesome." You know, it's Paul McCartney. If Wynton Marsalis were to call me, which I'm not, I'm not standing by the phone, by the way. But if he were, <laughs> for whatever reason, he decided he wanted to do something with me, I would be all over that. It would be awesome. Um, so it, 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 it's, there's a big range of what I'd be open to doing, and it just really depends on it depends on the song. It depends on the circumstance. I mean, I'm not going to play something that I don't feel comfortable playing. Um, mm-hmm. So, because I don't, you know, I, I want to do things that, that that are fun to me and comfortable. So it doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to try hard to get out of my comfort zone. I mean, that's that's how you get better. But you know, I just I, I just have to play it by ear and see what what comes my way. But I'd be open. I'd be open to a lot yeah. of stuff. <laughs> well. Without using going home as our musical cue that it's about time to quit, let me ask you, a guy who has one of the best-selling artists of all time, um, I think seven or eight singles have reached top 40 on Billboard. Your Christmas album, Miracles, sold over 8 million copies, breathless over 12 million in the U.S. Uh, what some people may not know is you hold the Guinness Book of Worlds record for the longest note ever recorded on saxophone. What's next for Kenny? <laughs> wow, uh, God, that's a <laughs> I don't even think about it like that. Um, so those, those things kind of just happened. I didn't really try to make all that stuff happen. And maybe, yes, I tried to hold them a long time. That's true. But uh, um, 45 minutes. 45 minutes, yeah. Well, I'll break that record before before too long. I'm, I've got to go at least an hour and a half, which I know I can do. <laughs> so I'm going to do that at some point. And in the next year, I'm going to make that happen. Um, but I'm going to hold that. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, that's why you're good at what you're doing. See, I, didn't, I couldn't think of that line. That was a very good one. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I'd like to, um, I don't know. I'd like to, there's lots of things I want to do. Um, musically, um, there's, there's, a, there's a certain sound of a jazz ballad that I really like. For example, like that song Naima. Mm-hmm. Of course, everybody knows Naima. Sure. But, but there's a vibe of when you, when you hear those kind of jazz ballads where, there's there's all this space, beautiful tone, melodies there, and then there's there's little pockets where you can throw in some really great intricate licks, you know, mm-hmm. not not too many, but just the right ones at the right time. I'd like to do an album like that. I, I've I, I just I've never heard an album that's made like that yet, and I'd like to do that. And, and I'd love to hear it. it. Yeah, me too. And I want to write. I want to write. Pretty much most of all the music, but I, I want it to sound as if it was a, a ballad that was written back in the fifties and sixties and played by you know somebody like a Dexter Gordon or or Coltrane or whoever else you know. Um, so I want to do something like that, but you know that's going to require a few years of working on it, which I, you know I'm up for that. So that'd be something I'd like to do before before I'm not alive anymore. <laughs> Well, that'd be as, far great. As, as far as breaking records or doing those kind of things that you mentioned before, um, I don't know. I guess, God, I think it's tough one there. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think about like, well, I want to be the first person to X, Y, Z. I don't really think about it like that. Um, so, there you go. yeah. Well, Kenny, thank you so much for your time. I hope oh, Michael, better- thank, thank you. I mean, uh, I hope I see you at one of my shows one of these days. But I do appreciate the. The, uh, the the uh, the what's the word the gentleness of how you're you know you talk to me about music etc so because 
I, you know, I know where you, what your magazine stands for, and I, I just really appreciate uh, the support and just the, you know, just the honesty and, and again, the gentleness. So, thanks. Well, the appreciation is mutual, and uh, I hope to see you one of the shows soon too. Okay, you too. All right, be well. Take care, you too.